Good hot evening, Veritas Church. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, actually, so... I'm not sure my wife agrees. Good evening. I'm Greg Balzer. I'm pastor here at Veritas. We are continuing on our study through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the eighth in a series of sermons. Tonight we're looking at, as Brian just read, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where Jesus talks about and explains how his teaching aligns with that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees. We're going to see this evening if Jesus is actually a revolutionary or a reformer. A lot of the uh, message tonight focuses in on theological topics, and it kind of verges on getting technical, but I really want to make sure tonight that we don't lose sight of Jesus. We don't want to lose sight of the central point, the central focus point of all these verses. It's my hope that by the time I finish preaching this evening, that we'll all see that basically in a nutshell, the verses tonight all really center on and hang upon one single nail, that nail being Jesus. Jesus not only fulfills the law and the prophets, for the Christian, Jesus is also our righteousness. It's important that we don't lose sight of this, of Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So it's my prayer this evening that as you better understand who Jesus is and who we are in him, that our faith would be strengthened, our love would increase, our actions would reflect our changed hearts, but most of all, that our good God would be glorified. So last week I gave you a structure on how to form and look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I've got a whole new structure tonight. But uh, hey, it is what it is. For tonight's message, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount could be thought of as a three-act play. In the first act, in the Beatitudes and the Salt and Life verses, Jesus' disciples tell us who we are, right? That's, we know that. That's a message from the past. First act, who we are. The second act of the Sermon on the Mount are verses 17 to 20 that we're looking at tonight. And these verses are where Jesus tells his disciple how he fulfills the law and fulfills the prophets. In the third act that we'll look at over the next several years, the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains to his disciples that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees and actually provides a case-by-case example of how that really works. As Brian read those verses earlier, I was, I was a bit perplexed because I never really realized how many verses there actually are this evening, but, but don't worry, we'll be here before it gets dark, and I tried to actually sharpen my sword and my editing tools and make this um, more lean and more concise this evening. But again, I think what I do see as being important, just to reiterate one more time, that hopefully when we're done, we will all see that the central nail that this all hangs on is Jesus and his righteousness, and that through his righteousness, not only are the scribes and the Pharisees fulfilled, but also we're able to walk in a greater righteousness. So this evening, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where Jesus instructs his disciples how he fulfills the old covenant law. But first, before we go there, we're going to need help. I'm going to need help. If you join with me, 
now in prayer. Father God, thank you for the time together here to study your word. May we not take time together as a church body for granted, as it seems to be a rare commodity these days. Thank you, God, for sending us Jesus, our Savior, our sacrifice, our righteousness, and our hope. God, give me the ability, I pray, to be able to preach your word accurately and clearly. Grant each of us here tonight, as well, the ability to be able to understand and be transformed by your truth. We praise you for the work that you are about to do. Amen. So, just like the verses last week, the verses on salt and light, tonight's verses use words that are very condensed and compact. There's a lot of language of contrast, just like last week we were looking at salt, light, darkness, light, salt, salt without, without any kind of savor in it. This evening we're looking at similar words that have similar contrast we're looking at the contrast of the scribes and the Pharisees versus Jesus. But, so I guess my point is, is that these words are compact. And as such, a little bit of explanation will be required up front to understand what these words um, mean. So when we're using them within context, all the pieces will fall into place. But I'll try to keep those definitions succinct and to the point. Our outline tonight is rather straightforward. It may not be as uh, wonderful. There's no alliteration in this outline. It's actually long and kind of clunky, but it's the best that I could do, and I think it actually works. So for those of you that have pens and taking notes, and for those of you that aren't taking notes, we're going to first look at how Jesus fulfills the Law and the Prophets. That's verses 17 to 19. And then we're going to look at our righteousness, how our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees. So again, Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, and secondly, how our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that's verse 20. So again, we're going to be looking at how Jesus fulfills or completes the law and the prophets. We're also going to be looking at how Jesus calls for a righteousness for each of us, for everybody that wants to get into the kingdom of heaven, a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees. So before we jump into the study of the first couple, of several verses, three verses, we need to take time to look at two key phrases, the law and the prophets, and the words or the phrase to fulfill. What do these words mean? And, and the reason that it's worth going into this is I did a study on this, came up with my uh, sermon outline, and I thought I had it all figured out. And then I did some more digging and discovered that I actually had quite a few mis misconceptions, misperceptions regarding the law and the prophets, what that means, and it was an unconscious bias, as well regarding what it means and Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. So we're going to go there. I think it'll help you as it helped me. Then when we actually dive into the verses themselves, they will mean uh, the accuracy of what they mean will be a lot more clear. So we're first going to look at this phrase, the law and the prophets. What does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? If you look with me now at the first half of uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Smoke. The first half of Matthew five seventeen reads as follows. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
So I don't know about you, but when I hear law and I hear prophets, I think about jury duty. I think about protests. think about Black Lives Matter. I think about police officers and judges and juries. I think about a legal justice system. I think of dusty law books. I think of uh, law enforcement officers, juries, judges, courtrooms, an impersonal system of justice. And that's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. The Law and the Prophets does include actually restrictions and rules and regulations. After all, the, the Ten Commandments are, are part of the Mosaic Covenant, and the Ten Commandments are actually uh, restrictions or, or legal requirements. But the Law and Prophets actually goes beyond just legal constraints and, and a, an impersonal governmental machine where you've got the cogs turning very slowly and finely and, and yielding an end result, sort of like a, 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 a mechanistic type process. The Law and the Prophets is different. The Law and the Prophets includes not just the law, not just thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. The Law and the Prophets includes all Jewish scripture. The Law and the Prophets includes the Pentateuch. I hope I said that right. The first five books of the Bible or the first five scrolls. And the, this includes, described in this Pentateuch, is the early history of Israel. And this includes a number of different things. This will come back from those of you that have been in Sunday school. It includes the creation of the world, the life and the death of Moses, the history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the exodus from Egypt, the preparation to enter the promised land of Canaan, and as well, don't forget, God's covenant with his people through Moses. And, and a covenant is, is more than just law. A covenant is a relationship between God and his people. The Law and the Prophets includes all Jewish scripture, the Pentateuch, and it also includes the major and minor prophets as well as the Psalms. So, key take on point. In a minute, when we jump into the exegesis of the verse itself, you're going to want to remember these points, right? The Law and the Prophets means more than just laws and regulations, dusty books, impersonal judges. The Law and the Prophets describes all Jewish scripture, the laws and the regulations, including the Mosaic Covenant, which looks at God's relationship with his chosen people, as well that includes the history of God's relationship and his dealings with his covenant people. That was the Law and the Prophets. Next phrase to understand, to fulfill. or actually, but to fulfill them. What does it mean when Jesus says to fulfill? Look with me again at your Bibles. Let's look at the second half of verse 17. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, fulfill has many, many, many definitions, but in, in most cases, biblically, it's best to look at within the, the book that you're studying itself for the definitions. And this phrase, to fulfill, is used seven times regarding Jesus and Matthew. So this is a good place to actually focus on the definition of fulfillment. Um, rather than investigate each of these verses individually, one by one, in the interest of time, let me say that in Matthew, fulfillment generally specifies two different conditions. The most common, our most common understanding, probably if you went to Sunday school, or if you taught Sunday school, or if you read the Bible, the most common understanding of fulfillment would be as a, as a fulfillment of a prophetic 
Old Testament uh, uh, prediction. Prediction is the word, not prescription. The fulfillment of a prophetic Old Testament prediction. And that's the most common understanding, right? So Jesus was named Emmanuel. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was called out of Egypt. Jesus was called a Nazarene. A Nazarene was a, not a good thing in those days. All these are examples of fulfilled prophetic predictions. So I imagine a little checklist on the wall, and you've got your to-do list, and does Jesus meet condition A? Yes, check. Does Jesus meet condition B? Check. That's the nature of the first of these two types of fulfillment. The second type of fulfillment is a bit broader, a bit more difficult to describe, and I probably won't do a perfect job with it, but I think you'll get the gist here. The second example of fulfillment is where God, uh, the fulfilling of the scope of God's work with Israel. It's a broad topic. But in general, this fulfillment is looking at the idea of bringing to completion all that Jesus began to do in ancient times. All that Jesus began to do in ancient times. This fulfillment would include a substance that fulfills the shadow. You had a shadow in the Old Testament, a glass darkly through which we perceived how Jesus was going to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, how the promised Redeemer was going to come. This symbology and typology is, is throughout the Bible, and a, couple, a few examples would be three examples, where Jesus is told to be the second Adam, or shown to be the second Adam, where Adam came, tried, and fell, and failed, Jesus succeeded. In the same way, we've got Jesus as the Passover Lamb of God, and Jesus as the Lamb of God itself. So we've got two types of predictions here. One, a checkbox, a checklist, a fulfilled, prophet, a fulfilled prophetic Old Testament prediction. And secondly, a more holistic fulfillment where Jesus fulfills the Old Testament types and shadows. As such, in Matthew, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and predictions, but more than that, he also is seen as continuing in the historic line of what God started, his preceding, saving, and covenantal work. In short, to fulfill means that God is, Jesus is bringing to completion all that God began in ancient times. So that was the Law and the Prophets and to fulfill. Now we're ready for the main course. Get your knives and forks ready. With this broad understanding, we're ready to jump in and first focus in on verses 17 and 18. And then we'll also include verse 19, as all three of these verses emphasize the same point of Jesus fulfilling the law. As we've seen previously, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. As we've also seen, the Law and the Prophets was a very uh, particularly uh, favorite topic of those that were in the Mosaic Covenant. Remember again, though, Jesus spent the first 17 verses of the Sermon on the Mount talking about the Law. Certainly, if you were a Jew back in that day, after Jesus got to verse 15, 16, or 17, you would have most likely been asking, but what about the law? Everything in Jesus' time 
was about the law. They kept the time of the day, the month, and the year was based on the law and the, the uh, sacrifices in the temple. The law was a regular system. It was a framework upon which everything hung in the Jewish time, the day and age. And by this point, I'm sure that the, the Jews would have been asking, what does Jesus believe about the law? Does Jesus reject and abolish the past? Or does he support the law, the prophets, and the Mosaic Covenant? Let's now look closely at Jesus' position, his opinion, his position regarding his support of the law and the prophets. Look with me now, please, at verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here, in no uncertain terms, Jesus makes very clear that he's not abolishing the law. Apparently, if you look at the, the verbiage here, in verse 17 it says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. So I think, at this point, Jesus was thinking that they were thinking that he had indeed come to abolish the law. But Jesus actually tells them twice, in no uncertain terms, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. He tells them twice that, he does, that he's not there to abolish, not here to abolish the law. So it's clear he's not telling them he's going to abolish the law. Then Jesus furthermore doubles down. Jesus doubles down in verse 18 regarding his commitment to the law. Verse 18 reads, For truly I say unto you, Sorry, King James. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all was accomplished. Back in those days, they used Hebrew. Making sure I've got that correct. Yes. And the, the iota and the dot in the Hebrew alphabet were two of the smallest details. And here Jesus is telling them that not the smallest detail, not the not the dot or the iota, punctuation or grammar marks will pass from the law until it's accomplished. So Jesus here isn't taking the law lightly. Not only is he saying it's, it's not going to be abolished, but he's saying that every last detail will be accomplished until either heaven and the heaven and the earth pass away um, or until all is accomplished. And regarding that last point, there's two ways to interpret how long this Hebrew law lasts or stays in effect. And I think both are valid. I'm, both sound legitimate to me, and they're both different. So I'll just give them to you, and you can choose which one. You choose to believe. We can talk about it afterwards. So we see in here where it says, I say to you, until heaven and earth, not, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot will pass from the law. So that would seem to apply that, we, that Jesus is talking about there that the law is going to remain in effect until the age to come is in place or the, es the eschaton, until Jesus comes again, his second coming, when, when, everything, when the heavens and the earth are wiped out and we get the new heavens and the earth. On the other hand, I could build a case that the law remains in effect in until the death and resurrection of Jesus when all is accomplished. 
So either of those two periods of time, when Jesus dies and is, is resurrected, the law is good until, or until the new age comes, or maybe it's a partial fulfillment of both. But the point remains, Jesus has said that every detail of the law is important. Every detail stands forever until all is accomplished. Next, in verse 19, Jesus continues this same train of thought and expresses his support for the law. Have any of you ever been at a job and you've encouraged a coworker to take ownership? Usually, this plea comes about when a coworker is letting something slide and something really critically important is not getting done. And that's when you you call out the heavy artillery, say, you need to take ownership of this project. You need to take ownership of this problem and come up with a solution. This call is a, this phrase is a call to action, a call to personally invest one's heart into solving a solution. In a similar way, Jesus is declaring here in verse 19 that a relaxed support of the law is not sufficient. No sliding along going with the flow, will actually exist. In verses 17 and 18, remember, Jesus declared the continuity of the law and the prophets. Here in, Jesus, here in verse 19, Jesus goes further and declares that a tacit or non-enthusiastic or just going along with the flow support of the law is not sufficient. Let's look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will, not, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus states that greatness in the kingdom of heaven comes not to those that slide or let things just kind of go with the flow, but to, the, but to those that actually do and teach and own and are enthusiastic and are possessed by a desire to teach and do the law, even the least commandments of the law. Conversely, those that weaken water down the commandments will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And actually, as a side note, most commentators interpret that not as being saved as through fire, least in the kingdom of heaven, but most interpreters, most commentators interpret that as being an example of those that are not saved, not actually being in the kingdom of heaven. Right here, Jesus is doing two things. One, Jesus is reaffirming the necessity to teach and to do the law. And secondly, Jesus is also, in my opinion, setting the stage for admonishing or encouraging or exhorting the Pharisees in verse 20, as we'll see in just a few minutes. If anybody serves as a good example of relaxing or taking lightly God's law, it's probably going to be the Pharisees. They're probably the poster child for that particular exercise. So in summary, to complete this first major thought, that of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets, Jesus did not come to abolish the Pentateuch or the Mosaic Law or God's covenant with Israel or the entire history of the Jewish nation. 
Rather, Jesus affirms, cares deeply for, and fulfills the law and the prophets, even to the slightest detailed point. The law and the prophets find their continuation, their completion, their fulfillment in Christ. The law and the prophets are good things. They're going to remain until the job for them is done, but they're going to find their completion in Jesus. But Jesus is not done emphasizing the lasting validity, the importance of the law. In our final verse, in verse 20, Jesus raises the bar of achievement even higher. Let's look next at verse 20, where Jesus describes the greater righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember a moment ago I talked about the Pharisees being the poster child. A moment ago in verse 19, we heard that Jesus requires his followers to teach and to do the law. A half-hearted commitment, a lukewarm commitment, a watered-down commitment does not meet Jesus' requirements. This point is driven home further, amplified even more in verse 20. Look with me now at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned this a minute ago. The Pharisees were known for several attributes. They were almost famous for it. One, they had a scrupulous attention to the law. They would strain at a gnat that went down their throat to try to keep um, aligned with the law that avoided, that told them not to eat or eat meat on that day. They, were, they had a scrupulous attention to the law, very, very, very careful to obey the law. But conversely, they also had a bit of an ev evasive approach to the law. They didn't necessarily, they tried to find ways to water down the law to make it easier to achieve. And they almost had to because they were so scrupulous about their focus on obeying it, it was almost inevitable that they had to water it down. You probably remember from last week where I related Jesus' descriptions of the Pharisees. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. The image here being that of uh, a, 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 a crypt being clean and white on the outside looking like a nice, clean, good, holy thing. But on the inside, this crypt was full of dead men's bones. The Pharisees were experts at displaying an external righteousness that betrayed the true condition of their hearts. Outside, they appeared religious, but inside, they were full of dead men's bones. They were far from righteous. Their hearts were far from the living God. But wait a minute. It's not just the Pharisees that call Jesus to this standard. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This applies to the Pharisees, but who else does it apply to? Who is Jesus' audience when, on this Sermon on the Mount? Who was Jesus talking to? His disciples. Jesus' call to greater righteousness is not limited to the Pharisees, those bad Pharisees, right? Bad Pharisees, right? Those sinners. We're all sinners before God. Jesus' call to righteousness applies to you. It also applies to me. It applies to all who wish to enter 
the kingdom of heaven. Christian, could I ask you a question? Does your righteousness, does my righteousness, honestly reflect our eternal, internal condition? Do our good deeds, our works of righteousness, truly reflect a heart changed by Christ? Or are we too full of dead men's bones? Remember earlier that I said the main point of this evening's message is, is not theology, not biblical memorization, not understanding the definition of terms, not theology, but the main point and the focus and the celebration in this evening's message is, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. Jesus is also the one who enables his disciples, you and I, to exhibit this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and that of the Pharisees. This greater righteousness is the product of being that we saw described earlier in the Beatitudes. This greater righteousness is not something generated by us under our own strength, our own will. This is not a self-righteousness. This is God's righteousness granted unto his, us by grace. This greater righteousness is the natural product of being a disciple, a child, a disciple of Jesus, a child of God. A changed heart, changed desires, these enable, fuel the examples of greater righteousness described by Jesus that filled the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. This changed heart, a heart transformed by God's Spirit, is perhaps best described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.3 and 8.3 uh, to 4 and verse 9. And those verses read as follows. For God has done, fulfilled, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And verse 9 tells us, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law for us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts, causes us to turn from sin, and gives us new godly desires. Father, may our hearts and minds and desires be transformed by you. May we be conformed unto your image by your Spirit for our good but most of all for your glory. Amen. Almost every Sunday following the sermon, we take communion together. We do this in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of what he accomplished for us through his death on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26 read, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, <laughs> for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So remembering and proclaiming our Lord's death this evening. You're invited to take communion with us if you meet a few requirements, if you're a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation in the work of Christ, and if you're a part of a local church, either this church or another that faithfully preaches the gospel you heard here proclaimed tonight. We will have leaders that will bring communion out to you. Please stand to indicate you would wish to receive communion. And after you've received the elements, it'd be really good if you uh, would sit down. That way we know who has already been served. And then when we're all done, we will take the bread and drink the juice together. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your new covenant a new covenant that fulfills the old, a covenant of grace and mercy where our debts are paid by your perfect works, your death, and your resurrection. Thank you for imputing your perfect righteousness unto us by faith and reconciling us unto God. Amen.